the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. The natural and wild environments of our national parks offer the unsurpassed protection and diverse ecosystems that birds need to thrive. And that makes our parks equally great places for you to see these birds. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This week, the traveler's Lynn Riddick talks to birding expert Nicholas Lund of Maine Audubon, who believes that whether you consider yourself a full-fledged birder or just someone who simply likes birds, when it comes to our national parks, there's always a bird in the air, in a tree, or along the water's edge to see, hear, and learn about. In a minute, Lynn will be back with Nick. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join Wild Tributes for the parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Since 1986, national park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any national park visitor center or park store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. While visiting a national park, you may recognize the squeaky hinge, out-of-tune violin sound of a bugling elk. Or the hair-raising, bone-chilling yipping and yapping of a pack of coyotes. But what about birds? How well do you know the sounds of birds in our national parks? That's a sound you might hear in the Grand Canyon or Canyonlands or Big Bend National Park. Do you recognize it? It's a canyon wren. My guest today is Nicholas Lund. He's the Outreach and Network Manager for Maine Audubon and writes a blog called The Birdist. He's checking in from his home office in Cumberland, Maine to talk all about the birds of the national parks. Hi, Nick. Welcome to The Traveler. Hi, Lynn. Thank you for having me. 
Well, before we get started on talking about birds in the national parks, um, tell us what you do for Maine Audubon. I am the advocacy and outreach manager for Maine Audubon, which means I do a bunch of stuff. I'm partly in our communications shop, which means I write a whole bunch of stuff about birds and all the good work that Maine Audubon does. And I'm also an advocate. So I run a variety of programs uh, to raise awareness about impacts to birds from various causes. And I help uh, work in the legislature to pass legislation that protects Maine wildlife. I help out with a bunch of things. I lead bird walks. I do whatever I can to uh, help birds and other wildlife in Maine. And what's the relationship with the National Audubon Society? It's a good question. Uh, we're not uh, an official part of the National Audubon Society. We are an independent statewide organization. Uh, we have a lot of the same goals and we work often with uh, National Audubon, but we're not an official part. We just share the name. So how about a summary of your birding background? You know, I grew up here in Maine to a real outdoors family, specifically a family of hunters and fishermen. And I grew up doing those activities and I love them, but they aren't, they never quite filled, they never quite met my needs, I think. You know, hunting and fishing are great, but they're, look, and I'm sorry, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go ahead. They're a little boring. You know, hunting, you're sort of walking through the same woods or sitting in a tree stand the whole time. Fishing, we would be catching the same fish over and over. And I, you know, grew up with a real love of the diversity of wherever I am. That if it's Maine, that means all the different habitats in Maine. If it's the country, that means the country. And so those two activities never really sort of scratched that itch I had until I found birding. Birding is essentially hunting without shooting something, but you get to go everywhere. And that means for me, I've been all over the country. Um, I think for, I birded in 48 states. I'm getting out of the country as much as possible to find all the birds of the world. And birding is such a fun activity because you, you go everywhere. You, you, you just, in order to see all the birds, you have to go to all the places because they live in every single different type of habitat. And so I love it. And that's my birding background. I've been birding for a long time. Uh, I, when I'm not out birding, I'm thinking about birding and tweeting about birding. Uh, I go as the bird. That's a great online. pun, by the way, tweeting about birding. <laughs> it sure is. Uh, I write about birding for, for National Audubon and for other places. I just published uh, the, the American Birding Association Field Guide to the Birds of Maine. So I just love birds and birding. And, and it gets me to a whole ton of national parks, too, which is why I'm so happy to talk to you today. Well, speaking of the national parks, um, You've said that the most popular national parks aren't always the areas with the largest bird diversity. Why is that? So there are a couple of ways to think about birding. If you're a hardcore birder, typically your goal is to build the biggest list you can, see as many species as you can, which is great. And that's what I do a lot of the times. That doesn't always mean going to a national park. There are lots of sort of geographic reasons that different species are funneled into one area or, or certain areas that have a high diversity of species. That's not really a value judgment on the area itself. It's just part of the geographic quirk that, that gives it a big list. And so I've thought a lot about uh, which national parks or you know national park service units have the highest bird diversity. And it's not you know Yellowstone and it's not Yosemite and it's not the Smokies. Though those places are, you know, fantastic natural areas and have incredible birds in them. When we're talking about high bird diversity areas, we're talking about places that 
have a couple things. Uh, have a high sort of geographic diversity in terms of habitat diversity. And so are generally sort of geographically situated in a way that brings species to them. And that's sort of a, 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 a birder term where a lot of what gets a birder so excited is, is birds that show up in places they're not supposed to be. That's one of the sort of delights of birding is that, you know, birds fly and they fly from hemisphere to hemisphere. And sometimes they screw up or get blown off course or for some reason show up far outside, you know, where they are expected to be. There are certain places where those birds are more likely to end up than others, like the coasts or on a peninsula somewhere. And so National Park Service units that are coastal peninsulas uh, or other have other sort of geographic features tend to have a higher species count than say, you know, Yellowstone, which is an isolated place or a, or a you know, inland place. And so the, the, the National Park unit uh, it, that has the highest bird list is Point Reyes National Seashore in California, which makes all the sense in the world. It's, it's a peninsula out by itself. It's on the coast. Um, birds get sort of funneled down in there. Uh, there's a bunch of different habitats. There's forests and, and grassland, you know, grasslands, meadows, and tons of, um, of shoreline. So that's the place that if you were going to park it, for a year and which sounds let's do that and get the, build the highest bird list you can that would that would be where you go um other places like that have high high lists too the second is sort of a surprising one gateway national recreation area new york and new jersey which is you know not probably the place that you would think of as a place that's having the most birds but checks all those boxes it's a coastal spot with a big peninsula and there's tons of birds migrating through um, so there's a big list there the next couple ones with the highest diversity are um, like sort of what I would call oases. You know, there are like desert parks. These are like Carlsbad Caverns or Big Bend desert parks that um, that are green spaces in a, in areas that don't necessarily have a lot of green around them. So a lot of birds will fly there as oases, as sort of refuges. Um, and so you can build a lot of species that way. So. If this is a sort of birder value judgment in terms of building a list, not necessarily a natural experience of seeing the landscape judgment. And you had mentioned the National Mall, which is uh, under the uh, auspices of the National Park Service, the National Mall for birding. It's fantastic, you know, and I'll say this too. I've birded at, you know, close to 100 National Park Service units, probably, and all of them have birds in them. that and that includes national historic sites that includes urban parks in cities that includes cemeteries that includes places any green space if you look hard enough has birds and every single national park service unit has birds in it um, the national mall i've seen tons of species out there it's along the water there's a lot of trees there there's some open I remember birding one time in the winter there was a big snowstorm and I walked down by the the Washington Monument and there were um, Lapland long spurs down there and horn larks that had sort of gotten blown out of the sky from the from the storm those are really hard birds to find uh, in the you know, mid-Atlantic and in DC and there they were I, you know I turned around there was the White House and I looked right here and there was the Washington Monument there were these great birds you know, you never really know what you're going to get. And as long as you're in the place to see birds, um, you'll get them. You mentioned a few. What are some of your other favorite parks for bird watching? Oh, man. 
so the thing that I love about birding is that it takes you to so many different places. And I'm so interested in the diversity of the country. And I like being immersed in sort of like, like typical habitats. I mean, I love seeing really um, like characteristic habitats of different regions of the country. And that's what national parks protect, right? And so the bird life of these places is goes hand in hand with that that natural characteristics. And so uh, when I think about that question, I think about a place that's very identifiable. So I think about the Everglades. And when you're in there, you're you're you're, you're nowhere else but the Everglades, right? And so and so part of that, in addition to the palm trees and the sort of the the sort of waves of grass, are roseate spoonbills flying around and wood storks flying around and snail kites flying around. Same thing when I think about like Saguaro National Park in Arizona. You have these tall cactuses and you have this like this classic Southwest landscape. Then you have gilded flickers, which is a bird you can really, you know, it's easy to really only get there in the US. And then I'll think about Olympic National Park in Washington, where I just was this past summer. And you think of that, you know, deep forest, cool rainforesty habitat. And you think of varied thrushes uh, and you, you think of chestnut back chickadees and all these sort of like stereotypical birds of these places. When I think about my favorite places, national parks to bird, I think about the ones that are that in my mind are so classically classic American landscapes that have birds associated with them. So, you know, those are just on the list that jumps in my mind, but there are a bunch of others. You know, I think one of my favorite national parks to visit is Cumberland Island National Seashore off the coast of Georgia, which I think is an incredibly underrated spot. And, um, you know, out there you have this, these cool, this live oak forest uh, and all kinds of seabirds and shorebirds moving up around the island. That's, <laughs> you know, I, I have a map near me that has all the parks on it. And every time I glance over, I think of another one that I've been to. There are national parks that have birds that don't aren't really found anywhere else. And so those are very special. I'm thinking, thinking of a couple, one being um, Channel Islands National Park off the coast of California uh, has a bird called the Island Scrub Jay. Many folks in the Western US know uh, scrub jays they might, might see in their backyards, uh, California scrub jay or Woodhouse's scrub jay. Channel, the Channel Islands have a scrub jay, a species that lives nowhere else. You can't, can't find it anywhere else. It's only on the islands. And so I took a boat trip out there, a wonderful boat trip uh, out of Santa Barbara and landed on the island and saw some of these scrub jays hopping around. Um, that was pretty cool. Another really famous one uh, in the U.S. is uh, a bird called the Kalima warbler, which in the United States is only found at Big Bend. Uh, you got to sort of climb up. It's a sort of famously potentially hot, long hike uh, up the beautiful hillside there in Big Bend. And if you're lucky, you can find Kalima warblers singing and frolicking around at the top. I've done that. And that was, you know, I'll never forget it. Uh, you found some? Season. We found some. And there were rattlesnakes there and there were elf owls there. And um, part of that sort of sky island landscape that's um, uh, that you can find in the Southwest. 
Um, but the only place in the U.S. to find Kalima Warbler is in Big Bend National Park. Battlefields are good places to bird, you've said, and you learned this through your work with the National Parks Conservation Association. Tell us about that a little bit. That's right. I, I started at the National Parks Conservation Association doing Civil War battlefield work or Civil War park unit work, working to protect battlefields and, and uh, related national park sites um, uh, that were related to the Civil War. And, you know, being a birder, of course, I birded in all these places I went to, too. And I was really at the bird diversity in some of these Civil War parks. I was traveling to places like Gettysburg and Monocacy and Antietam. And in addition to being, you know, sacred sites for American history, they are large natural areas. Um, you know, these sites, these places are not necessarily thought of in the same vein as like a, you know, a, a natural focused national park, but they really have all the same values and species and wildlife in them. And I've had some fantastic mornings. I, I in particular, I led a bunch of bird walks at Antietam National Battlefield. And the habitat diversity there is incredible. There are these, uh, of course, big open fields where you can find grassland birds, um, like grasshopper sparrows. And there uh, is the river that runs through there. You can find herons and, and cuckoos and things. Uh, I remember seeing cliff swallows nesting under the famous Burnside Bridge in Antietam. And uh, so I just, uh, you know, part of the work I did there and, and something that's always stuck with me is that you should never sort of discount, uh, you know, national parks have a lot, there are a lot to offer, right? Even a historical park is not just the history there but it's also protects and is, is really crucial to large areas of, of natural protection and, and uh, the birding and other wildlife watching in these places can be just as good as, as anywhere else. Right, isn't Fort McHenry um, National Historical Park in Baltimore a, a great place to see a huge variety of birds? Absolutely, it's I think famous as a migration hotspot there on the sort of the peninsula. Fort Monroe as well is a place that I, I went to during my work for with MPCA, which is, you know, has some great coastline down in Virginia and, and a lot of birds passing through there. Uh, Fort Sumter even, you know, a lot of parks, uh, if, if you're a natural area, you're going to have birds, um, whether or not uh, what else is going on. And so I really value my time birding in places like Monocacy and, and Gettysburg because of the history, but also the, the natural characteristics there. This is Lynn Riddick and I'm speaking with Nicholas Lund of Maine Audubon. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at Yosemite.org. 
the Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. I'm back now with birder extraordinaire, Nicholas Lund. What are some of your favorite bird songs or sounds? <laughs> there's, oh man, there's so many. <laughs> there are so many. Um, you know, bird sounds are the frontier for, for birders, right? You, 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 once you get through learning how these 700 whatever birds look like, learning their costumes, figuring out what they look like in the in the breeding season and then outside of the breeding season figuring out the 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 females versus the immatures versus the males you finally get that down and you're like man now i gotta learn a thousand different calls and chip notes and things and so right, and, and, and might we add that the common carolina wren makes like 40 different sounds or something every bird has a ton of different noises yeah <laughs> it's really challenging but you know, part of the fun in birding is that you're never you're never done. You're never an expert at it because there's always something new to learn, or there's always just a mountain of stuff that you, <laughs> you got to try to learn for the first time. And bird songs are really a part of that. And you know, I'm I, I consider myself an expert birder, but there are tons of songs, tons of times I'll be out in the woods and I'll be like, what the what the heck was that though? Um, and so, but I do have some favorites, and there are some some sort of classic ones. I tend to love sort of the simpler calls, I think. Um, it, out east, we have a bird called a broad-winged hawk, uh, which gives a very simple sort of plaintive whistle that can be heard, you know, as it flies overhead. That's a bird that migrates up in April and is now in, in some of our forests in the northeast. Um, in the winter, there's this crazy duck that comes down called the long-tailed duck that, that hangs out off the coasts of the sort of the northern half of the east and west coasts. And it has this really, this call that I've always loved. It makes this weird like call that's really loud that you can hear sort of echoing across on, uh, on, on quiet mornings. Man, the list is endless. Really, part of the answer is anyone that I can identify, anyone that I feel good about when it calls, that's the one I love. It's the ones that are a noise that I'm like, man, I should know that, or what the heck was that, that I can't place. Those are the tough ones. So let's give our listeners a little quiz to see if they can identify birds in our national parks. Can you identify this? <laughs> Hint, you might hear that sound in Death Valley National Park. That's the call of the greater roadrunner. And the roadrunner is amazing. The species that we have here in the U.S. is called the greater roadrunner. Um, down south in Mexico and other places, there's some other species of roadrunners, but ours is the greater roadrunner. The greater roadrunner is a, it's a cuckoo. Uh, it, it's closely related to the cuckoos, which are these odd uh, arboreal birds that live mostly in the east, east eastern U.S. The roadrunner is a is a you know at some point in its history came out of the trees and started just chasing things around on the ground, and they are just so inquisitive and unusual and show stopping. You know, when you you see a roadrunner chasing some 
poor lizard around or bashing some, something with its beak, you can't look away from them. They're, they're sort of goofballs, but they are, um, you know, really graceful and impressive creatures. So, Nick, I have to say that I've seen roadrunners in my own yard uh, on my driveway and, of course, in this park where I like to hike near our home. And yeah. I love it. It's always fun to see a roadrunner. They are delights. No one, no, and no one looks away from a roadrunner when they come scampering by. Uh, it's, they're always just like the life of the party. How about this bird you might see and hear in the Gateway National Recreation Area in New York and New Jersey that you mentioned? Do you recognize that? That's a least turn. Tell us about the least turn. Yeah, least least turns are awesome. Terns are small gull-like birds that uh, are typically typically you know migrate north and south and come up to uh, for the least turn to the eastern United States in the summer spring and summertime. They are the smallest of the terns that we have. We have man eight or so species of terns in the U.S. and um, they are the smallest, the least of which, but they are the most in character. <laughs> uh, they are very uh, cute birds. They have a little yellow bill um, and a little sort of white eye stripe. Um, they fly up and down um, coastlines, squawking at each other and diving for little fish. They are, are a sensitive species. They nest on beaches, which means that as humans have come and changed how beaches are used, we, you know, run our dogs on them and play around on beaches, that um, least terns and other beach nesting species, you know, are, are uh, losing some of their traditional habitat. So in many places, including my home state of Maine, least terns are uh, a threatened species and one that we, that Maine Audubon works to protect, especially their, their, their beach colonies. Uh, but they're just a delight whenever you see one. They're loud and squawking and, and um, full, of, full of chutzpah. Um, and so uh, keep an eye out wherever you are. Now here's a raptor you might find in Point Reyes National Seashore. The answer is the American kestrel. What do we know about them? Mm. Man, I love kestrels. Kestrels are falcons. They're small falcons. They're brightly colored. Our American kestrels have uh, bright orange and uh, on their backs and blue on their wings. They are small, but they're fierce, um, especially if you're a, a dragonfly. They love to snag dragonflies out of midair. Like all raptors, they are based on speed. You know, every raptor family has its own sort of um, hunting style. The what we call budios, red-tailed hawks, and other sort of big hawks are um, love to sit on a perch above a field and look down for for rodents, and then they pounce down. So they're sort of big and ponderous. There's another family of hawks called the occipiter hawks, which includes like coopers and sharpshin hawks. They are forest hunters, so they're built really, ag they have agility, so they 
can fly through the woods and track down birds mostly. Falcons, which are not hawks, but they are raptors. Falcons are built for speed and surprise. And so their whole deal, like a peregrine falcon, is open ground speed hunting. And so they spot something from far away and then just bomb in like a like a bullet, like a missile, and try to snag something. Peregrine falcons are famously the fastest moving animals in the world. They can, uh, in doing some of their stoop dives, they can travel over two over 200 miles an hour, which is just insane. Kestrels are falcons, just like that, but their their prey is a little smaller. They're typically after dragonflies or other small animals. They're colorful. You see them a lot on, you know, like um, hanging out over fields, perched over farm fields, things like that. You often also see them sometimes hovering. So they'll sort of hover over an area and look down and scan around to find some prey. Um, a really beautiful and powerful little bird. And do you know this bird? It's an osprey. What can you tell us about ospreys? Ospreys are amazing. They live in all continents except for Antarctica. They're a worldwide species. They are in their own family and it's funny. They uh, so they are. Some people know them as seahawks. They are famous for diving into the water and grabbing big fish out, and they are such a delight to see from a beach, especially or or on a coastal area, because they will sort of soar pretty low over the water or over your heads and and be scanning down looking for a fish, and then when they find one, will just talon first slam into the water and grab that fish. And then with their, their powerful wings, push themselves out. It's really physically hard, actually, for a bird to be able to hold on to a wriggling fish that's a couple pounds, you know, weighs not that much less than the bird itself, and pull yourself sopping wet out of the water and into the air and, and get that fish back to your nest. Ospreys famously will sort of rearrange the fish in their talons so it's facing head first for aerodynamic purposes, so they can more easily fly themselves back to their nest. There, there's sort of a lot of overlap between bald eagles and, and ospreys, um, both big, powerful birds of prey, both love to eat fish. But in terms of character, the osprey wins, no, no doubt. Uh, bald eagles are notorious for stealing food from others, especially ospreys, they'll harass ospreys and try to get them to drop their fish. And they do that for a lot of other species too. They're sort of, you know, not the, the uh, <laughs> they sort of have a low character. Where ospreys hunt for the vast majority of their, of their own fish. I mean, they do all their own hunting and, and do it the right way, you could say. Um, so ospreys are, 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 are just an incredible species. I wanted to say that I think it's interesting that some raptors seem to have, like you were saying, kind of a more delicate, high-pitched call than 
than you might expect from a, a bird of that size. So, mm. so where are some good parks and seashores to see some raptors? And why is it they have such a delicate little call? Yeah. You know, raptors are not known for their vocal repertoire. Um, there are a, a lot of factors go into why some birds have fancy songs and why others don't. A lot of it has to do with, you know, songs for the most part are, are how you attract mate. I mean, it's how, it's how mostly male birds, although a lot of species females sing as well, defend a territory and advertise themselves to potential mates. Raptors do a lot of that, but it's not typically through their uh, vocalizations. They will defend territories by um, swooping down, by literally fighting birds or other sort of shows of strength often. And similarly, they, I, I think, you know, advertise themselves to potential mates through, uh, you know, physical displays or visual displays. A lot of times it's, it's smaller birds that are trying to make themselves heard through the, through the trees or across long distances that have really loud or, or fancy calls. And so I, I think that's what, it, what attributes to the, you know, you never hear a, you never see an eagle sitting there singing a beautiful song. They, they, they sort of have a funny little chuckle that they give. Parks to see them. I mean, this is the thing about birds. There's no bad parks to see them. Every single park, um, every single large park uh, ha has really good raptors in it. If you want to go to the Grand Canyon, you can see, um, or if you want to go to Pinnacles, you can see condors, which is an incredible experience you can have at some of these parks. They're not known for their- Have you seen the their... condors? Yeah, I have at Pinnacles. Not at, uh, I wasn't able to track any down at Grand Canyon, but I saw them at Pinnacles in California. And I don't know what, a, what an experience that is. <laughs> That's the thing I love so much about national parks is that you can, you can allow yourself to be transported back into a, a you know, a, a natural place and condors were a part of that, you know, humans came along and really knocked down the condor population. But if you go to pinnacles and seeing, seeing, see them soaring around, you can, you can, you have the feeling that you're back before humans came back and you're in this natural spot. You know, other places to see, you know, if you want to see bald eagles, you can go really anywhere. A lot of urban parks, Delaware, Water Gap, Santa Monica Mountains. A, a, a lot of urban parks will have birds like ospreys or red-tailed hawks or bald eagles that are, you know, pretty tolerant of people, even peregrine falcons increasingly. So you don't need to travel far and wide to see raptors. Um, you just got to sort of be ready to see them bombing around. And you mentioned the bald eagle. Here's a little chirp, surprisingly delicate chirp of a bald eagle. And like you say, all across the continent, from the Chesapeake Bay to the Grand Teton and Yellowstone National Parks. What has amazed you most about the birds you've seen in the parks? Oh, man, I, I just love the bird diversity. And the, the, the thing that's so great about the national park system is that it captures the complete diversity with American landscape. I mean, that's sort of the goal, right, is to um, is to protect places that represent everything that America has to offer. And what that means in each places is it's unique species. 
And so uh, every park that I've been to has some sort of, uh, you know, has the flavor of that landscape. And that could be, uh, you know, Kenai Fjords in Alaska, where you go out there and there's Kitlitz's murrelets and, and red-faced cormorants flying around. You're in this, you know, wave-splashed, cold Alaskan habitat. Or Hawaii volcanoes, and there's, you know, the remnants of um, uh, Hawaiian honey eaters, um, and, you know, Iivi and uh, Apapanes and these, and these birds that exist nowhere else outside of the Hawaiian Islands. That's what I love so much about being in far-flung national parks, especially in seeing the birds, is that everything is there. And that includes, I think, birds in my backyard, too. I think uh, Katahdin Woods and Waters National Park here in Maine, one of the, our, our national monument, uh, one of the newest national park units, um, protects an incredible array of birds, boreal birds that are uh, you can't really find anywhere else very easily. Uh, spruce grouse, blackback, woodpecker, boreal chickadee. There are a ton of birds uh, up here that really represent what northern Maine has to offer and what the boreal forest has to offer. And I think the other thing that impresses me so much about parks is often the accessibility of these places. Uh, a lot of these natural areas can be difficult to access, but national parks, because they are intended to be places that people can visit, provide access, you know, uh, allow you a way in to see these habitats. Uh, Katahdin Woods and Waters is a great example where in Northern Maine uh, or in a lot of other places, it's there aren't a lot of great ways to access. Is that, a, is that along uh, the Appalachian Trail? Yep, the Appalachian Trail, it, uh, the International Appalachian Trail runs, uh, so the, the Appalachian Trail ends at Mount Katahdin, which is um, in Baxter State Park, adjacent to Katahdin Woods and Waters, just to the west. Okay. The International Appalachian Trail runs from Katahdin and continues through Woods and Waters National Monument um, on to Scotland, if you can believe that. So there is tons of hiking in the park, um, but there's also a loop road that you can drive and see um, species that are really tough to get anywhere else, any, any, anywhere close, like, um, you know, blackback woodpecker and, and spruce grouse and all these breeding warblers that are there now. Similar access issues help really for anywhere else. Uh, the Everglades, and you, there's no other access into that type of, uh, you know, wetland complex like there is in the Everglades. And, um, you know, you name it, Olympic or, or Yellowstone. Uh, each of these, because it's a national park, it allows, it gives access to people to come in and, and really see up close the landscape and the wildlife in that landscape. Would you say we're seeing an increase in populations or a decrease or staying about the same? Mm. Well, there's a lot of different ways to answer that. And that depends on the species that you're talking about uh, and the particular population that may be you know, being protected. Overall, 
you know, nationwide, not con- you know, thinking about the national parks uh, specifically, there is certainly a, a large and continuing decrease in the number of individual birds in the U.S. The, the study from the National Audubon Society found that we've lost uh, 3 billion birds in this country um, since the 1970s. And that's due to a whole host of factors, including a change in climate, including habitat development, including, you know, outdoor cats, window collisions, pesticides, you name it. And so overall, without question, bird diversity and bird numbers are decreasing. But that doesn't mean that every species is reacting the same way. National parks act as places of refuge for hundreds of bird species. And many parks have programs that are working to protect particular species or, or suites of species. And that can be either through protections offered in, uh, you know, just what the park is doing to uh, improve its own habitat or protections from the Endangered Species Act or other bird protection laws. And so there are a lot of ways to answer that. You know, one thing we can say, we mentioned bald eagle up, up, up before. Bald eagles were uh, nearly extinct. And so the recovery of those species due to this country understanding what we were doing with a pesticide called DDT and banning that pesticide has solved the problem. I mean, it, they are back uh, in force throughout the country. You know, similar programs like California condors that we talked about, um, the, the problem is a little more difficult, I think, with California condors, and it's not quite the, the easy fix that bald eagles, you know, uh, not to say that was easy with bald eagles, but, um, but national parks like uh, the Grand Canyon and Pinnacles and some others are playing a critical role in providing California condors with the, the places they need to, to live safely and to be monitored uh, and, and sort of help uh, as they are restored. There are tons of other examples I, off the top of my head, you know, piping, piping plovers in, uh, I think, St. Croix and Mississippi National River and Recreation Area. I think they're doing some work there in, in Gateway and some of the other um, parks along the East Coast, uh, especially beaches. There's work uh, to protect piping plovers and, and other beach nesting species. So, you know, across the board, national parks work to protect a, a ton of different birds, and there are success stories in many of them. Um, but Overall, we still have a lot of work to do in this country to protect birds overall. Well, on my recent park trips, I've noticed that some birds um, are pretty acclimated to humans, probably from being tossed a peanut or a Cheeto (laughs) or picnic crumbs or whatever. Do you think birds in general in the parks are less timid than in the past or are we getting smarter about feeding wildlife? I hope we're getting smarter about feeding wildlife. Um, you know, the, I, and we certainly, I certainly would never encourage people to, to throw species to food to wild animals, but I feed birds in my backyard as well. Um, you know, and, and it's a fairly common thing to do. I really respect the fact that national parks do not put out bird feeders and they don't play calls. I mean, um, uh, other than the sort of the, the visitors sometimes throwing some handouts to birds, uh, national parks are very wild spaces and, and, and do a very good job, I think, of um, maintaining themselves as wild spaces. You know, birds are smart 
and they know where there's some good food to be had. And if if uh, people are dropping Cheetos out, you know, of their car, there'll be a bird to to, to swipe down. That's not necessarily. I think the best way to think of it is that's not that bird not being wild anymore. That's a wild bird making the best use of its habitat, making making the best use of the environment. Um, so it's okay that that's happening, um, but I think we should intentionally, especially in national parks, not do it on purpose. Um, but those birds are just as wild as anything else. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm speaking with Nicholas Lund of Maine Audubon. Soar with Interior FCU. Learn about the different rewards programs Interior Federal Credit Union has to offer, like Nickelback Rewards, Member Rewards, and Purchase Rewards. Explore how you can start saving today at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. I'm back now with birder extraordinaire, Nicholas Lund. You hit an American Birding Association milestone last month, and I want to talk about that. So you've seen 700 birds um, Mm -hmm. and an April trip to Texas. Uh, just last month enabled you to hit that mark. Tell us about that whole thing. Oh man. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Like I said, birders keep track of their lists. Right. And it's, and the more, you know, you're sort of trying to find them all. That's sort of the unstated goal of birding. It's not, it doesn't have to be that way, but a lot of birders are out there to try to find as many birds as they can. And in the U S 700 is a big number of species, 700 different bird species in the U S and the typical way we define U.S. is the United States and Canada outside of Hawaii. I encourage everyone to bird in Hawaii, but for uh, the particular list that we keep, um, because there's so many different birds out there, we sort of keep it to the, this continental list. And so, you know, for as long as I've been birding, I have known that 700 was sort of the, the target number. And the thing about birding is that it gets harder the more you see, right? When you first start, you're seeing new species every single day. And then once you've seen a whole ton of them, you, it gets much harder to see new species. And so I was up in the 690s uh, earlier this year, the high 690s. And I, and I said, I got to, I got to get, we got to get this. Let's do it. There were a bunch of rare species being seen in the lower Rio Grande Valley of Texas. And so I cobbled together a trip down there. Uh, we cruised down. I had 
four targets. I needed three species and there were four possibilities. When I, by the time I got down there, one had gone. So I needed to find all three of these birds. I found one of them, a bat falcon. I found another one, a golden crown warbler. And then I spent two days, me and my buddy, spent two days standing around the campus of uh, University of Texas at Brownsville looking for a social flycatcher. And Lynn, <laughs> we did not see it. We didn't see it. So I left Texas. We limped back to San Antonio and flew out. And I was on 699. But then the, the, the birding gods smiled upon me. And in my home state of Maine, a... European gull, a bird called a common gull, accidentally made its way over here to Lubeck, Maine, as far down east, we say, as you can get, uh, looking across the bay to Canada. And my buddy and I drove up at the crack of dawn and found this common gull sitting in a puddle by the roadside. And that was my 700. So I popped the cork right there and celebrated right in that, right on the roadside. You know, birding is like that. Birding is so much fun um, because you because it's so unexpected like that. If if your goal is to to see new birds and to and to find birds that show up out of place, you never know when that's going to happen. You don't know. You could be sitting there. I could be right now talking to you, and I could get an alert on my computer, and I would have to cut short this interview to go drive and get some crazy bird somewhere. The the excitement that it the un the unexpectedness. Uh, that birding gives in your life is so much fun to me um, because you never know where you're going to go or what you're going to be seeing or where you're going to be going next. And, um, you know, that trip and the quest for 700 really, really proved that. You had mentioned that you had been um, birding in 48 states. So what are the two states you have missed out on? <laughs> the only two states I've never been to are Kansas and Oklahoma. Uh, I've come close, but uh haven't been there yet they're on my they're obviously on my list i'd love to get over there uh i know that there's tall grass prairie in, in kansas would be a great place to go to chickasaw national recreation area in oklahoma is a park down there i could get to uh, and so those are on the list and so any any day now i'll go it's hard you know because i there's a lot of places in the world i'd love to go and and uh haven't connected with those two yet yeah i was wondering um time and money are kind of key factors in the birder world i guess if you want to check off a lot of birds uh, off your list yeah time more than anything else i the, you know another reason i love birding is because uh age doesn't matter you know um if i was like a mountain biker or a rock climber i would probably have to retire when i hit a certain age but if i can still look and listen and walk around then i can bird so a lot of birders are older i can't wait till i retire and I have free time to go look for birds. You know, I'm sitting here in, you know, working all day long and I just want to be outside. You know, money is a factor, but but really the type of sort of travel, it, it the, uh, it's only as much as you want to do. So I could have just as much fun in my backyard looking at all the species that come through or in my county or in my state as I would if I traveled the world and found birds. Um, and so birding overall is a very cheap hobby. You know, you have, you get one pair of binoculars and that lasts you a decade or more. And then you have the, you know, gas money to get wherever you want. That's really it. 
you know, I don't need to buy expensive equipment. I don't need to, to buy fancy clothes or anything. You can do it. You can spend a lot of money doing it, but you also don't need to at all. So it's really the free time. You know, the people I'm most jealous of now are college students and retired people because they have the time to see all the birds or where, you know, me with a, with a wonderful family and a wonderful job, uh, I'm, I'm stuck here, <laughs> stuck here with obligations. Yeah, I, I was uh, going to say you're such a prolific writer. Uh, I saw a lot of your articles on your blog. Um, you've written books. I was wondering how much time you had left to bird. <laughs> yeah. You know, I do a lot of my birding in the backyard. Uh, and, you know, we're recording this in late May right now. May, for most, for the especially the northern half of the country, is just the most exciting month. Because this is when we've gotten through the cold winter and all these birds are migrating back to breeding grounds here or further north. And that means coming through our yards. And so, you know, when I'm here... Uh, through the cold, quiet, lonely winter with only a couple of cardinals and morning doves in my backyard, all of a sudden I have orioles back and warblers passing through and birds that aren't staying here, but I may be able to see in my, my little suburban backyard as they're moving somewhere else. And so there is, um, I can find time to have fun whenever I can. But also, you know, I, I have arranged things. So I work at Maine Audubon, which means that I get to go to places like the Acadia Birding Festival, where I'll be next week. Yeah, I wanted to ask you how often you got out to Acadia National Park. Yeah, you know, not as much as I'd like, frankly, but the Acadia Birding Festival is a fantastic festival uh, and that I've been able to take part in a couple times. And we're back in person this year. And so I'm going up and leading a bunch of tours up there. And, you know, what an amazing national park that is, right? You're right on the water. There's all kinds of different seabirds and also, um, you know, passerine, land birds, songbirds that are moving through there. I'll be doing some birding in Katahdin Woods and Waters National Park later on this year. And I'm super excited for that. That's the, the birds up there are, are spectacular and, and not well known enough. You know, the birding in that park is not that well known yet. And so I'm really excited to, to raise some awareness about uh, the hot spots in that park and how great it is there. So uh, I have arranged my life so I can bird more than I would otherwise, I think, but uh, still not as much as I'd love. <laughs> well, I'm kind of a fledgling birder. Um, I've always loved birds, but I never really paid much attention to them. And about a year and a half ago, I started to learn and teach myself about the birds that were coming through uh, our yard. And I'm happy to say that I've seen about 50 or 60 bird species go. just going through our yard in the past year and a half. So it's it's been really fascinating to me, the colors of birds and, and the challenge of trying to identify a bird while you've got three guidebooks opened up on your lap and you're, you've got mm -hmm. moments to sort of study what kind of beak and what kind of, you know, eye band and uh, yeah. eye stripe or, you know, wing bars or all those mm -hmm. things. It's, it's uh, kind of challenging, but very enjoyable and relaxing. Absolutely. And it gets easier, you know, the, the, like anything, the more you practice, the easier it'll get. And you'll start to identify, you know, which things you need to look at to, to, to figure out what a bird is, or you'll just learn what some birds are. But it is something you can do in your yard. You know, everyone who has a yard or can look out onto a tree or nature can be a birder uh, and can see a ton of different birds. That's another thing that makes it so great is that you don't, there's no, there's no downtime. You know, it, like if I was a rock climber, I, I, I need to go to a, a very big rock before I can climb. But if I'm a birder, anytime I'm looking out a window, whether that's in my car or in the office in the city or anywhere, you can be practicing birding. 
and your backyard is is just is a perfect place to learn uh, because there are birds there and you can learn the differences between them and uh, it just takes a little practice but trust me you stick with it you'll be you'll be a pro in no time well nick this has been a lot of fun talking to you um thank you for your time today it's been really interesting to learn more about the the birds in our parks and especially you know encouraging to know that great birding can be found in our national urban spaces too so please keep us posted on your work all right lynn i will thank you so much for having me it's been great talking to you that's our show for this week we hope you enjoyed it next week we're going to ask you to spend some time just listening to the sounds that originate within national parks and don't forget monday night june 6th on the travelers monthly webinar we're going to be slew-slogging in Everglades National Park with Ranger Yvette Cano. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.